Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, all of the pundits, all of the so-called experts are saying that after New Hampshire, when Donald Trump has become the first non-incumbent in history on the Republican side of the ledger to win both the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus, that he is the very, very, very likely favorite to be the nominee. What does that mean? It means the country is hurtling towards a rematch that poll after poll suggests that the plurality of Americans don't want. Trump versus Biden, too. What is the alternative? A guy called me the other day and says he's going to write in Donald Duck. I said, I'm not sure Donald Duck is eligible. What are the other alternatives? Well, very, very pleased uh, to be joined by a man who I've been very open about the fact I am very impressed with. He is not only a best-selling author, not only an attorney and an activist, but he's an independent candidate for president who happens to be leading among independents, leading among Generation Z and some millennials, and according to the approval disapproval polling ratings that they go by, is actually the most popular presidential candidate in America today. I'm talking, of course, about independent candidate for president Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mr. Kennedy, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining me. Frank, it's wonderful to be back with you. Last time we spoke on the radio, you were running as a Democrat. You made the decision to uh, kind of switch gears and run as an independent. A lot of old school Kennedy Democrats were counting on you to be the guy that helps take back the party and brings it back more in a Kennedy-esque direction. What led you to run as an independent rather than stick with the Democrats, the party that you've been a member of your whole life? Well, they, the Democratic Party was changing the rules to make sure that even if I won the uh, the votes in states like uh, New Hampshire, like Florida and other states, that I could not win any delegates. And actually, my campaign manager at the time, at the, from the beginning, Dennis Kucinich, the longtime Democrat, told me at the outset, they're never going to let you win in the party. They're going to rig it. And... Um, I I was really the last person in my campaign to say, okay, to throw in the towel and say, okay, we, I've got to go a different route. But, I, you know, I'm very happy with what we did because I think it frees me to talk about issues and to take positions on issues that are not in the tribal silos mm. and the corporate-controlled silos of both the Republican and Democratic Party, and it escapes the smoke-filled rooms and, uh, you know, all of the, the funding from BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, the military contractors, and, uh, you know, and the pharmaceutical companies that control both of the political parties. 
when I talked about the fact that you gave that speech about when you first decided to run as an independent, I said that I found that to be one of the most inspiring candidates speeches that I've ever heard a presidential candidate give in my lifetime. And a caller after caller said, yeah, I like what he said, too. But you have to do the rational thing and vote for a candidate that has a chance of winning. Address those folks, the folks that may like your message, but they don't view an independent candidate as having a path to victory. Do you view yourself as running to win the election or to make a statement? No, I'm running to win. I I wouldn't be running if I wasn't intending to win. My wife would not uh, would not put up with that for one. But um. Yeah, well, you know, as you pointed out, I'm leading already in the uh, six battleground states among all Americans under 45 years old. I I dominate, you know, by uh, eight or ten points in even in people under 35 years old. Both candidates, I dominate in the among independents, which today is the biggest political. This will be, Frank, the biggest. The first time in American history when independents are the biggest political party, larger than Republicans or Democrats. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm only, you know, the, the polls show me between 22 and 24 percent in the battleground states. Actually, you know, in Michigan, I'm 27 percent. But if I'm at 24 percent, which is my average, I'm only... 10 points ahead away from winning the election, potentially, because mm. all I need is 34 points to win. That means I have to take 4.5 points away from each, from President Biden, President Trump over the next 10 months. And I've been taking a point a month in the poll, plus, as you pointed out, my popularity is greater than each of them. And I think more and more Americans are, you know, really fed up with having to choose between the least of, of two possible evils and they want somebody who they like and who can inspire them and who's offering a new direction for the country. And I, I'll tell you another path to victory, Frank. If I, um, even if I get about 33 electors um, in certain states, it throws the election into a contingency election, and we believe that I win the contingency election. So if he goes to the if the, the House of Representatives, neither uh, President Trump nor President Biden can get 26 votes, and nobody will change their vote. And under the 12th Amendment, they cannot essentially can't leave the chamber until they decide. So in 1800, when they did it, there were 26 consecutive votes uh, ultimately they have to they're going to have to decide on a uh, on a compromise candidate oh even if i failed to win uh 270 delegates i i still i think i'm the best bet to win a contingency election so in the house of representatives where they vote by state delegation even there though there are no state delegations that are headed by independence you actually think because of the polarization among democrats and republicans you could have a chance of slipping in as a compromise candidate yeah because neither side can get 26 votes mm -hmm. so and each state gets one vote so the congressional delegation 
uh, has to agree. And there are some states like Minnesota that have a split delegation that, you know, are not going to be able to disagree because no congressperson who's a Democrat can, can vote for Trump. Uh, they'll mm. lose their career and no uh, Republican congressman can vote for Biden so they'll, the, or they'll lose their career. So they're going to have to come up ultimately with a with a compromised candidate who everybody can agree on. And uh, you know, I anyway, I I think that I end up winning that contest. I know you got a lot going on, um, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. A couple of other quick things that I want to run by you because we haven't had a chance to speak on the radio in a bit. If you had to boil down your campaign's theme to one message or one theme, if people are hearing you for the first time with new ears, now that it appears likely to be a Biden-Trump rematch, and now that you're starting to get ballot access in states like Utah and New Hampshire – what would the one message or one theme be of your campaign? It, it would be restoring the middle class in this country, you know, winding down the empire abroad, reinvesting in our industrial base, ending the chronic disease epidemic, which is beleaguering the middle class. We, when my uncle was president, 6% of Americans had chronic disease. Today, 60%. There's no nation in the world that has the kind of chronic disease burden that we do. We know where it's coming from. It's coming from toxics, from glyphosate, neonicotinoids, uh, high fructose corn syrup, all, all of these. And NIH won't do the studies. And we we need to, um, and, you know, it's costing us $4.3 trillion a year. We were spending 4% of GDP on health care when I was a kid, when my uncle was president. We spend 20% today. It's totally bankrupting our country. The war machine is bankrupting our country. We need to focus on Americans, on making housing affordable. Uh, this generation of kids is not going to be able to afford a house. None of them are. This is there's, housing prices have gone from two hundred fifteen thousand two years ago to four hundred thousand this year, and we've gone from three percent interest to now close to eight percent, and the housing's being snapped up by. You know, Vanguard, Fidelity, BlackRock, and Arcade, and, and Blackstone, and uh, and State Street, and the biggest companies in the world that are targeted. They own 89% of the S&P 500, and they're now targeting single-family homes, and it's making homes unaffordable for Americans, and that's wrong, and I'm going to fix it. This Saturday, you're doing a big rally in Charleston, West Virginia at 6.30 p.m. at the uh, Charleston Coliseum and Convention Center. We've got a lot of listeners in West Virginia uh, listening on uh, WWNR, 6.20 a.m. Even some of our listeners on WABC happen to be in uh, West Virginia. Um, What are people going to – what's this rally going to be like on Saturday? For people in our listening area that may want to participate, may want to attend, what can they expect? You know, I'll do a a talk. I'll answer questions. Uh, I do selfies with everybody. It starts at 5.30 and it runs to 8.30. But, um, you know, it'll be fun. All of the rallies are very high energy. They're they're a lot of fun. And people can go to Kennedy24.com. And I hope to see you there. 
Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. I have to ask you about this just because uh, a lot of people have been raising it with me. Obviously, you have been one of the loudest voices, not just during COVID, but even before that, raising concerns about the health and the efficacy of uh, some of the vaccines that uh, Americans, especially American children, are required to get. A lot of folks are blaming you, either directly or indirectly, for making vaccine skepticism cool again and blaming you for the uptick in measles that we're seeing. Are you to blame for the uptick in measles, sir? Oh, actually, no. In in my position on vaccines, if you want a vaccine, you should be able to take it. But we should have good science so that you know what the risks are, what the risk profile and the benefits of that product really the kind of science that we need that we, we mandate for every other medical product. Vaccines, the only medical product that do not have to do placebo-controlled trials prior to licensure, and that's outrageous. We've gone from three vaccines when I was a kid to 72 vaccines that are now mandated for our children today, 72 doses of 16 vaccines, and uh, and we need to understand what that's doing to public health, what, you know, what the real impacts. Is. The, there's no evidence that a decline in vaccination has contributed to the rise in measles. One of the problems with the measles vaccine is that it deprives mothers of maternal immunity so that babies who are born to vaccinated mothers are not born with immunity. If you get measles when you're a kid and you're a mother, you pass that immunity on to your child and they retain that immunity till they're four, three or four years old. So they never got, when I was a kid, little babies did not get measles, you know, in their first year of life. And now what's happening is because of the vaccines, that little tiny babies who are very vulnerable and can suffer brain damage and other injuries are getting are getting measles early. The vaccine also wanes. So I, there's got a waning rate of about 20 or 30 percent in older ages. So now older people are getting measles, and that, again, is dangerous for mumps and measles and these other diseases. You're supposed to get them when you're younger. They actually, you know, they infer, they, they confer on people who get them immunity to other diseases, too atopic diseases, to allergic diseases, to cardiac diseases, and to cancers. Okay, so there's lots and lots of studies out there that show there's a benefit in getting those at the proper age. And unfortunately, you know, the measles vaccine was supposed to eliminate measles, but it never did. And it would have never been approved if people knew that it was a leaky vaccine. Oh, so, you know, there's a lot of questions about it. And we ought to have good science, the best science on that, so there's no speculation and so that every American knows the answers to those questions and that doctors can individually make the best decisions for their patients. 
there obviously i'm sure you're aware of the the rub on you in some quarters of the establishment media early on which is that uh, you were saying things that were mildly anti-semitic um you know the, a lot of people didn't appreciate the Anne frank comparison and then the study that you cited regarding uh, ashkenazi jews and and covid i had rabbi rabbi shmuley boteak on this program who said not only are you not an anti-semite you're the most pro-Israel candidate ever to run for president in history. And um, in the wake of October 7th, some people who had been supporters of yours have taken issue with that. One fella um, who's kind of a public person wrote to me who was very supportive of you and says, I'm no longer supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because of his support for the apartheid state of Israel. It's not my words, that's his. But there are some people that don't like what Israel's doing, that don't like what the Netanyahu's government is doing, and they see you as not necessarily being an appropriate um, you know, a, a backstop on on the uh, atavistic nature of the Netanyahu government. What do you say to those folks, folks that may like yeah, you I'm, on both I'm domestic not, policy and go ahead. Yeah, Frank, I'm not a fan of the Netanyahu government. And, you know, I have been very critical of that government in the past, but in terms of Hamas, and, you know, I think right now about 80% of Israelis are not fans of the Netanyahu government. I don't think he could be elected, re-elected today. But firstly, everybody in Israel is supportive of the of the action to eliminate Hamas. Now, I really don't see how anybody thinks that Israel has any choice. Hamas did not just start on October 7th. They've been bombing Israel for 16 years. Oh, they declared war on Israel in 2006 when they took over the Gaza government. They've sent 30,000 rockets onto many of them to Tel Aviv, which is twice the population density of of Gaza. The Israelis have been trying not to invade. They created the Iron Dome. No other country in the world would do this. Most countries of a little tiny neighbor started bombing them and sending terrorists over to murder their civilian citizens, which has aerial bombard them and level them. Israel has created instead this very expensive Iron Dome to defend itself. It, you know, they, they, it, Hamas fires missiles that cost it six or eight hundred dollars a piece. And each one of them costs $40,000 to shoot down. And that's what Israel has done to avoid invading Gaza. But, you know, Hamas, and by the way, I'm very, very pro-Palestinian. You know, I have a long history of support for Palestinians, and I love the Palestinian people. I've been to the West Bank. I've met with Palestinians all over Israel and West Bank and Ramallah, including the Palestinian leadership. But I'm anti-Hamas. Hamas is is victimizing and stealing from the uh, Palestinian people. Frank, the Palestinian people have gotten more money than any people in the world from the international aid agency. So we gave in 2023 dollars. We rebuilt Europe after the World War II with the Marshall Plan. We provided in 2023 dollars 621 dollars per capita to all the citizens of 17 countries that were demolished during World War II. In, in the last 20 years, we've given $8,000, $8,600 per capita to every Palestinian. 
why aren't they? And, and Gaza should be an incredibly rich place. It, Gaza is at the confluence of the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, its beautiful white sand beaches. Israel, when it left Gaza in 2006, offered to rebuild the port to make it the Singapore. It donated 3,000 hothouses, state-of-the-art, to Gaza to make it totally food self-sufficient. It left behind these beautiful farms, and, you know, it should be an extraordinary wealthy. But what's happened? Hamas has taken all that money, spent most of it on weapons, and by building an entire city, subsurface city, 300 miles of tunnels to attack Israel. Hamas's charter requires it to eliminate the Jews, annihilate Israel. It's a, its charter says that it's against Islamic law to even negotiate with Israel. So how do you negotiate? And, and then Hamas's leadership is profiting on all this. Ismail Hainia, who runs Hamas, has, according to Forbes, $5 billion net worth. The top three people at Hamas have an $11 billion net worth collectively. Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the West Bank, you know, the uh, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, is a billionaire. His sons have $750 million each. Um, Yasser Arafat died a billionaire. His wife is a billionaire. So, you know, we know this is why there's poverty in Gaza. And by the way, Israel is the opposite of a apartheid state. Every other state in the region is an apartheid state. Every one of them has an official religion and has has sanctions. In Jordan, there's not a single Jew. And, mm. and there's a death penalty for selling land to a Jew. That's an apartheid state. Israel doesn't have any laws like that. Israel has two million Palestinians. In Israel, they have every right that every Jew has, including more rights, because they don't have to serve in the military, and they can pray at the Temple Mount. Jews can. And and the Palestinians get a vote. They serve in the Knesset. They serve on every court. They have complete freedom of speech. They have freedom of expression. There is no official bigotry whatsoever mm. against Palestinians in Israel. So calling them an apartheid state and then not calling all the neighboring say there's there are 27 states in that region that have an official religion. You know what the one exception is? Israel. There is no official religion in Israel. I'm, so, I'm, glad, I, I'm glad I asked you the question. I know you have to run. Uh, if people want to see you, they can uh, come out to the Charleston Coliseum and Convention Center Saturday night. Then get more information at Kennedy24.com. Mr. Kennedy, I'm going to end on a very light note. Uh, president Trump was the first president, and I think over 100 years, not to have a White House pet. Uh, president Biden had a dog that had some behavioral behavioral issues, kept fighting Secret Service agents. If there's a Kennedy presidency, what will the White House pet be, sir? Well, I, you know, I got a lot of animals, Frank. I got, I got a lot of hawks and falcons, and I got a lot of dogs. So I'm not, you know, when my cousins were in the White House, we had ponies there, and we had parrots and, and dogs, and uh, so I'm going to see what I can get away with and what, what the public will bear. <laughs> All right. Well, hope, hopefully a whole White House zoo. Best of luck to you on Saturday and in the campaign, sir. I hope we get to talk a great deal. Thank you, Frank. Really enjoyed talking to you. 
Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 